Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. You're listening to Anita Marks on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome in 98.7 ESPN. Anita Marks with you. Another edition of my podcast um, and uh, a very special one. Uh, Mike Weiss joins me, former, uh, ESPN writer, also worked for the Washington Post, um, spent some time in DC with CBS and really has covered the NBA in New York, the New York Times back in 94, 95 and, and, and was a really big part of and, and covered the, the, what we're, we're watching in regard to the last dance. And so I thought it'd be great if him and I chatted up this afternoon all about the Michael Jordan documentary. So Mike, first and foremost, I haven't seen you in, I don't know what, like probably two years. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I, I miss our chats. I miss our green room uh, times and, and the Italian place we met at that one time. I just, you know, you were one of those good souls up there that uh, I, I, I really regret not seeing Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Um, well, first and foremost, let, and, and, and let's, let's preface by you and I really haven't had a lot of discussion yet in regard to this documentary. And so just so you know, um, this has been a walk down memory lane for me. Uh, during, during this era for Jordan, especially after his return from, from baseball, um, I was living down in Miami and, um, and I was roommates with a few of the Miami heat dancers. So I was, Oh no. Yeah. I know where this, I, I know where this is going. Well, no, I mean, there are stories. I, I can't, I just can't, okay, I can't. Okay. Right. Like this is like, you know, this is, this is, this is, I know one of them. I know one of them. And, and my, and I'm just going to say this for the record that, Michael Jordan had a lot of vices. Um, I, I had my own personal troubles and relationships. Um, I, to be honest, I had a thing called an attachment disorder, and I just kept running away from anybody that got close to me. But the bottom line is I don't judge because um, I would be judged too, and I didn't get my life straight until, shoot, maybe 15 years ago. And before then, I was a wreck. And so I'm not saying Michael Jordan was a wreck. I'm just saying I'm not going to judge him for any personal vices he had um, away from the court because, you know, that's, that's who he was. And, um, and I don't think this documentary was going to ever get into that. But No, no, and, 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 it, and it should not. But right. my, 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 I, I preface by saying this documentary has been a walk down memory lane for me in regard yes. to that time, the Miami Heat, the um wait did you know trista from the bachelor no she was um oh. she was a, she was after me way to, way to date me mike uh, way to date me you're you're much younger than me <laughs> but she was a few years she was a few years after my 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 stint and my group okay, okay? but um you know, it was a really fun time in Miami. You know, it was the Alonzo morning, the Tim Hardaway, um, the Bimbo Coles, the Brian Shaws. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, it was just a... It was a, the Pat Riley's. It was, well, actually, so it was, it was the beginning. I, I was, I was yeah. there. I was, there, so it was, so it was so funny when Pat Riley came to coach the Heat. The Miami Heat dancers were able to sit on the floor prior to him being there. Oh, in the last dance, me and Frank Isola are at court. You could see us at courtside during the documentary. Like, oh, my God, that's us. Look at the seats we had at the garden. So when, so one of the things that my roommates were so upset about is when, is when Pat came to the Miami Heat, one of the first things he did was he said, no dancers on the court. They have to be up in the stands. And he kicked my roommates off the court. Um, so I, I was, I was there for the transition and the introduction to Pat Riley. Uh, but regardless, I, I just, I preface this podcast just to say it was such a great time. 
It was such a great time to be in Miami. It was such a fun yeah. time to be around the Miami Heat and to be around the NBA beyond, even beyond Jordan. Jo- Jordan was the icing, right? Jordan was yeah. the cherry on top of the cake. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's really, you know me, I'm a football gal. And I really don't watch the NBA until the postseason. Um, but this is taking me back. And it's, yeah. and it's taking me back to a time in an era of the NBA that was just so fantastic. Aren't you feeling that by watching this documentary? Yeah, I am. And there's a lot of, you know, I, I, the, the renaissance of the NBA, when people think about the renaissance of the NBA, like, well, what was the NBA? It was never really big, boffo, big off, big box office until Magic and Bird got there. But Jordan took it to another level. And if you weren't born then um, and you just started to watch basketball during Michael Jordan's era, you would be accurate in assuming that Michael Jordan and that Bulls team, especially the second Bulls team, the first one was really – not more lunch pale, but they were they were sort of like, oh, wow, these guys are now three-time champions. The second version of the Bulls, when Michael came back and they won three times, that they were like imperious. It was like the empire. It was like the first order. It was They were so big. It was like, walk, walk, you know, when you went to cover them, it was like covering the Beatles, I imagine, back in the day, where you just, you know, 80,000 cameras went around Paul McCartney. This is what Michael Jordan was. If you you would be around him, and there'd just be so many people interviewing him, and you wouldn't get you know you were lucky to get a question in, but when you did, Michael had that that same charisma that um, they say Bill Clinton has, Obama, different people in life have it. When they look at you, and it could be thousands of people in the room, and it feels like they're looking right at you and they're talking to you. Michael Jordan had that. And man, he would, you know. You're 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 absolutely right. You know, and and it's 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 interesting because I I I talk about it. There's a few men that I have been I've been um, blessed to be in the presence of. Jordan yeah. being one of them. Me, the other. Um, it's incredible. Pat Riley, Herschel Walk, Herschel <laughs> Walker. Right over your head. I loved it. I I got you. Yeah. Herschel, Herschel Walker. Um and. Oh, Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker. Yeah. Oh boy, let me tell you something. You want to talk about a presence, a man, really? being, a man being in a room, and then and then not only that to talk about the um, bromances uh, that yeah. take place when he's in a room, and also believe it or not, Brad Pitt. There's something about Brad Pitt in a room as well. Hey, listen, you you you've met Brad Pitt in a room? I, I listen. I, I lived on South Beach for. Oh, so okay. So, uh, yeah. so just, you know, not, not that I met Brad Pitt, but I've been in the same, yes, I've been in the same room with him. Yeah, um, no, I, and, and there is, there is an aura, there is an essence, there is, you oh, know, no, you're right. Yeah. And I and, love what you said about bromance because Pat Riley, uh, same thing in many ways, Pat Riley, I was one, once Jeannie Buss was talking to the writer, Jeannie Buss, if you ever meet her, she's just one of the most down to earth people that's ever, you know, been part of an NBA franchise or not. She takes the riders in Hawaii when we were covering training camp one year. She takes them to the riders out for drinks with her friends. And we're just sitting there, Grant. I'm like going, come on, come on. Riley must have just been cool. Like, you, you must have been, you know, like, even you must have had a crush with him when you were young. And she goes, no. And he goes, you know what it is? Pat Riley's a dude magnet. You guys love him more than we do. He said, men want to be him. He's a dude magnet. And I'm like, you're right. Man, he's so tough. He's so macho. We want to be him. And so, like, that's that's Riley, man. And that's, you know, obviously Michael Jordan. Yeah. So so, so let's dive into um, – okay. let, let's, let's start with the last two episodes. Okay. You know, I was really excited because, like, the entire documentary ha- has been fantastic. But everything that I was hearing about episodes seven and eight were – we were really going to see a very personal side of, uh, of, of Michael Jordan. And probably, and, and obviously it started trending was the end of episode seven when he was talking about like, you know, what, (laughs) again, it's a family podcast, what a jerk he could be to his teammates, what a hard ass, how he could really ride somebody. Yeah. And he was, and he was talking about all the reasons why you might think he's, he's an ass. And he got really emotional in regard to how he plays the game, his competitive nature and how. He felt he needed to elevate others to an area that was going to allow them to come along for the ride. 
And yeah. of course he was specifically talking about him punching uh, Kerr. But how emotional he got to the point where he says, okay, break. Like right then, I, I, I think, and there's been so many fantastic things that we've seen and, and so, so many great lines that mm. we've seen from so many people so far in this podcast. But I have to say that the ending of episode seven, where he got really emotional talking about um, his intensity as a teammate really, really hit me hard. What about you? You got cry- you cried, or you or you really got emotionally. I I I, I, I didn't saw the I didn't, real Michael in that moment, or what? I didn't I didn't shed a tear, but yeah. I, but it was one of those moments where I went, wow, wow, yeah. that was that was that was that was he fought, like for a guy who constantly had his guard up, constantly. Yeah. That was a moment right there that ESPN shared with us that he let his guard down for a minute, even to the point where he said, "Break." Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I got a little more emotional when I, you know, when, when I really, I, I, the weird thing is, is, and I want, I'm going to preface this by, I didn't see the Jordan on the way up and the dues he paid. I knew about him. I didn't see that guy. And so when I saw that, when I watched this documentary, I really gained an appreciation for him paying his dues like I never had before. And maybe it's because I'd always been a magic bird guy. I'm a little older, but but, you know, Magic, he wanted his first year with a very good team. Bird wanted his second year with a very good team. Michael Jordan really paid his dues. He, he joined an organization that was the classic lottery team that was bad before they were good. They had to be bad before they were good. And essentially, that's why the lottery started. And so, so I didn't, so that Michael Jordan, I really liked in this video. When I saw Michael, when I covered Michael, they were so big. It was sort of like, you know, they weren't bad people, but they were just, they were just bigger than life. And so they didn't have time for you if you were the media. And that included the New York Times. And so, so my, my feeling about them was I didn't want to see them necessarily get beat, although I really like those jazz teams. But I was just sort of over it, like, okay, you guys are. And yet in those moments in the documentary, the, the part where the father, you know, he's, he's on the floor bawling about um, his father He's not there with him. It's the first championship after James Jordan was murdered. That really got me because while I'd seen the video of that, Anita, I'd never heard the audio. And you can hear him ball. I mean, he's crying. He's, he, he's sobbing like, you know, a boy that lost his father would, would, die, would sob. And um, so that really got me, that stuff there. Um, and I love the competitor that he was. I also – if I've learned one thing about covering sports all these years, it's we find reasons to like the guys that we do if they win for our teams. We find reasons to like them. And my point is, if Steve Kerr popped Michael Jordan in the chest and Michael popped him in the eye and beat him up and, 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 and they were 38 and 45, like the Wizards were the last two years of Jordan's career, he would be team turmoil. He'd be – He'd be the the old creaky guy, that old creaky veteran that alienated his teammates. He wouldn't be Michael Jordan, and he would not the, as we see him. So we see him different when when the means justify the end, which was a championship. We are okay with that, but the moment Michael Jordan did shit in Washington that was off the cuff. Oh, can I swear on this? Sorry, you're fine. Okay, uh, the one, the, 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 you know, I remember Wes Sunsell, the general manager, asking all the players at the time, you guys want to chip in for Mike's retirement? Get, like, they just turned their back on him because Michael had alienated the entire locker room. So did Doug Collins by that point. But that's, that's at the end of his career. You know, he's scratching his itch. Michael Jordan, we know it was all means to an end. And, while my, and I was, like, kind of bitching about it. My wife looks at me and she goes, wait a minute. You cannot have a problem with Michael Jordan being the ultimate competitor and pissing his teammates off and getting them to get If you're going to ever say anything good about Tom Brady, because when that documentary comes up, that guy dropped more F-bombs than anybody. And I was like, and I started to go, yeah, there's a different element here. They're like Guys like that, they're so driven, and you realize why they're the champions they are, because they – they, they, they're on that ledge and they hold everybody else to a, to a standard that is impossible. And yet they get there because that's how they won their titles. That's how they do the things they do. So I guess, you know, long story long, um, I'm kind of coming around to Michael Jordan, the asshole 
that's who he had to be. And that's how every, and that's how every great organization um, gets to where it is because they have someone that drives someone that much. And guess what? How easy was Phil Jackson's job? I mean, I'm not saying he, he, he massaged egos. He did great care team. He had great spe- speeches and everything, but he had the ultimate assistant coach playing for him, Michael Jordan. I mean, I, that's what I'm getting from this is that Michael Jordan motivated that team more than anybody. It's, it's really unbelievable. And then, of course, uh, we know his stint in Los Angeles with, uh, with Shaq and Kobe. Yep. Um, I, I think there's probably I got a lot. to know Phil after when I, you know, I wrote Shaquille O'Neal's autobiography. Uh, Shaq talks back for him. I got to know Phil really good. And the Lakers won their first couple titles with Shaq and Kobe. And, and um, we didn't talk a whole lot about Michael and Sky and those guys. But, but um, you know, there was a – he was a special coach in so many ways. But, you know, I look back on it and, you know, somebody said once, you know, the triangle works a lot better when you don't have Smush Parker in it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you need something well, to have some good players. Well, Mike, let, let's, let's, the reason I, you know, I, I, I think will be really interesting in, in having you mm. on the podcast is, is you kind of sharing the stories of, you know, the things that you were able to cover um, mm-hmm. while you were working for the Times. And even though you were covering the Knicks, you you were still covering the NBA and certain yeah. things that that happened with Michael Jordan that were really significant. What what what's what's the one thing that stood out to you the the, the best or the moment that you feel like wow you were so blessed to cover that? Well, I was like I, I mean you know, I don't want to go into my own career life, but when I, in '94 when I got the job at the New York Times, I had no job. I was unemployed. Paper I was working for in Sacramento went under. Nobody would hire me. I, I can't tell you how many rejection letters I got from the Glen Falls Tribune to the Modesto Bee. And out of the blue, you know, um, higher power looking out for me. I get a call from the New York Times. It's crazy. I get this job. I talk myself in there, into there without the pedigree of most people that work at the Times. And all of a sudden, one of the jobs they first tell me to do is, can you go to Chicago I think it was the summer of 95, and they said, um, Scotty Pippen's having a charity game. And this is cool. This wasn't in the documentary. And I, I go, okay, and, and there's a rumor Jordan might play in this. So I go, all right, so what? So I go to this chat. It was the last game at the United Center. I'd never been to the United Center where they won their first three titles. I'm not the United Center. The, um, the Chicago, old Chicago Stadium where they won their first title. They won, they won their first three titles. I'd never been there, and Scotty's Pippen's uh, charity game was the last thing to happen in that building before they tore it down and made it a parking lot for the United Center across the street. And um, and Michael did show up, and I mean, he Anita, it was like it was like he'd never left. That was sort of a year and a half he'd been out of the game, and he's hitting step back fallaways, and he's hitting step, and you know, and, and he's dunking over guys, and Scotty Pippen's loving it, and he's having a good game too, and and it turns into a real. It turns into a real affair. It's a real theater. And, you know, there's no promise that Jordan's ever going to play again at that point. And nobody really thought he – you know, nobody wasn't sure because baseball, um, who know who knew what was going to happen with – was that the summer of the strike? No, I guess it would have been after that. And at any rate, and so he plays in this charity game and nobody knows what's going to happen. And um, that, one, that was 94, the summer 94. And the, the baseball strike might be happening – and, and and all of a sudden, and I, I remember writing something like, it was like J.D. Solinger um, went to write again. And um, and that ended up on like a desktop calendar, you know, one of those quotes, and then my name was under it. And my dad was like, oh, my God, you're on a desktop calendar. They took one of your lines. And I go, Michael Jordan wrote that line for me, Dad. <laughs> so it was like that, that moment and the time when he came back and he scored the 55, I asked, I was covering the Nets that season, and uh, it was 95, it was, I think it was February or March. No, it must have been April 95 because he, and um, he came back and uh, I remember, um, I remember covering that game and I mean, he scored 55 points, Anita. And the, and the most amazing thing of all is um, he didn't win it with a shot. He won it with a pass. Everybody, you know, knew it was going to Michael. They double teamed him. He double clutched in the air and he fed Bill Wennington underneath for a dunk to win the game, to win this really intense game when the Knicks were sort of, you know, they'd just come off their finals year. And it was just such a moment. And I was like 55 points in his second game or second or third game back from, uh, you know, from retirement or semi-retirement. 
and I was just, I was just blown away. You know, oh, is that your is that your little pooch in the background? Well, one, I have five, so. Um, God bless you. Yeah, so uh, somebody must be walking up the stairs in the building. Well, another thing that stood out to me in in this past set, episode seven and eight was I, I loved that when he was making Space Jam. And he was at the same time getting ready for his return and was having those pickup basketball games. And the fact like, that they built him a, a bubble with a court where he could train. I mean, what a, what a commitment. Because I'll tell you what, living in Miami. So I, so I, you know, I've got a little handle. I, I, I play a little, I, I've played a oh, lot. No, I, I've played, I've played a lot of pickup basketball in and around yeah. Miami. And one of the hottest games was Glenn Rice. Glenn Rice would host like every like at Miami High, which if you know anything about basketball, Miami High has has um, developed some of the best basketball players in the country at that point in time. Oh, everything about basketball! I didn't know that. That's cool. And and so the Miami High gym um, on Saturday mornings, no air conditioning in Miami, um, would would and Glenn Rice would have these runs. And so you know and. And are you dressed like a basketball player or you got your, you know, you, you got like the right color scrunchie on and everything. You're trying to be a fashion show. Well. No, no, I, I'm not, I'm not into fashion when I, when I actually, I don't, I don't even like, I'm amazed how a lot of the, like a lot of the WNBA and, and the WUSA and, and, and they always, they look so good. They've got their makeup on, they've got their, their lashes done, like, and their, yeah. their lipstick. And I'm just like, I never look like that, that when I played you, sports. But anyway, my whole point, my whole point is like, like in talking to a few of the NBA players, they would tell, even I'll go one step further. Do you remember wide receiver OJ McDuffie from the Miami Dolphins? Mm-hmm. Okay. So OJ McDuffie would have a basketball run at his house on Tuesday nights. It was the day off. It was the night off for, in, for NFL players. Like these, these run. I'll, I'll go even one step further because you're in Washington. Um, Cal Ripken, probably one of the best runs that you. Oh, can, oh, oh he's he's got game. But one of the best runs you can go to. Cal Ripken has a run in the basement of his house. When yeah. you when you arrive, you are either team red or team white. Your name is on a board. You have your own locker room. Cal has already selected the team. He still do this? I would be into this. Oh, I'm sure he still does this. I'm just so from Cal Ripken to OJ McDuffie to to Glenn Rice with the Miami Heat, and then what we saw with 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 Michael Jordan, and and of course there was a means to an end. His basketball runs was inviting the guys so he could get ready for the season. Sometimes those runs in those games are more intense, more competitive. You know why? Because you don't have the zebras there calling fouls. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, yeah. Like guys, you're, guys you're, just you, play, you, play you know, when you're calling your own fouls, it's one of two things. You don't want to call too many fouls because then you know you look like a wimp. I'd use yeah. another word, but it's a family show, right? Yeah. Um, so I just, that was enough, man. I would, I, I would, I would have paid money, Mike, to see those runs. Oh, well, uh, getting ready when he was when he was filming. Space. Well, I was going to tell you, Anita, um, Jamal Crawford, who gave me like a, three weeks of interviews for a long story I did for the undefeated at ESPN, told me about, you know, the, one of the big things in his career was being asked to help get Michael Jordan ready at Hoops the Gym in Chicago. And uh, when he was I don't know, he must have been a rookie or is his second year in the league. And, um, and he said, Oh, this is great. You know, I love Michael's my idol. And, and he said, and he swears to this day and he says, ask Michael, he never lost a game. He played on Jordan's team one summer at hoops, the gym. And then they had like some intense, uh, pickup games. He said he never lost on Michael's team. They never lost a game the entire summer. Forget about like a week or whatever. Like I used to do it when I used to play pickup ball pretty seriously. I'd go like, ah, I was four and two last week or I was four and five or, you know, I was, five, five, I was six and two. This is awesome. He won every game in the summer. And like, and he said, Jordan refused to uh, let them lose. It was great. I mean, yeah, you're, you're the, the amount of the competitive nature there. It's incredible. Um, you know, obviously one of the big conversation pieces when it, when it, that that 
is created from this documentary yeah. is, you know, the goat greatest of all time. And I, I, I do feel it's, and, and like I said, like watching this documentary has created this walk down memory lane for me. And it, it has, it not, I've always said hosting my sports talk radio shows to me, hands down, Michael Jordan, greatest of all time. Yeah. But I can sit here and say this because, you know, I, I wasn't really watching basketball when Bill Russell was playing, yeah. right? Like, or, or Wilt Chamberlain. Yes, I started, I really started to get into basketball when it was Magic and, and Bird, right? Like, and, and those intense games that would, that we would yeah. watch like on a Saturday night. But, so a part of me is kind of like, you know, millennials or, or the younger generation who argue and debate and call into my radio shows. No, it's LeBron, it's LeBron, it's LeBron. I, I, I wonder, and I would love to have a conversation or, you know, um, not a town meeting, but, you yeah. know, just, just some type of conversation in regard to if you were to sit down and, and with, put a hundred millennials in a room and have them watch all 10 of these episodes, what do you think the percentage of them would walk away going, oh, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. It's yeah. Michael. It's Michael. It's not LeBron. What would you think the percentage uh, would be? Like? I don't know. Maybe 50% would change their mind. That little? Really? Yeah. I, yeah the people, people are just so brainwashed by their own time. And I hate to say this because Jordan, Michael Jordan is the greatest individual performer I ever covered. I mean, I, maybe because I like LeBron, and maybe maybe because I identify with LeBron's background so much. I mean, he really didn't have anybody to raise him. He was raised by a village. His mother was uh, in and out of drug addiction. His father was um, allegedly killed when he was very young. He never met his father. But this is a guy like who came from nothing, who who definitely could have ended up in a worse spot. And Michael Jordan had a much different support system. Um, and you can see LeBron's insecurities play out like Michael never have. And, and I think Michael Jordan's a better, is a greater all-around competitor. If God made, if God made a, if God made a basketball player tomorrow, he would probably make LeBron James. And and I say that with all humility because LeBron James, when when all said and done, if in Anita, if he and your 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 pooches can't join the podcast. I don't care. I really like dogs. But here's the deal. I think my deal is this. If um if if LeBron James leads the Lakers to a title or two, not three, I don't see him winning three, but I see him winning two, maybe at least one. That's a third franchise, different franchise that a player that would be the you know alpha male player on his team would lead them to a title. When you look at the longevity, everything else, he, he may catch Kareem as the all-time leading scorer. I, you know, look, they're, they're two different players in many ways because LeBron was LeBron was never the lead, the great leader that Michael was, but Michael Jordan couldn't do all the things passing-wise that LeBron James could do on the court. Michael Jordan played in an era in which isolation was good for him, and and being that guy, like LeBron James is, I don't know, look, LeBron James also. I know that people are going to go nuts about this, but like, I, I think he gets like, there's some prejudice about the whole hyper masculine black guy. He, that guy is bigger and stronger. He probably looked like he was 30 when he was 18. And so when he goes to the hoop and slams, it's not because he's bigger and stronger. It doesn't look as graceful as Michael Jordan. It's, it's not any less impressive. And so I think that Jordan will always be in people's mind as being the most graceful, the most powerful, all these things. I don't know. I, I think LeBron James wins three champion, three uh, different franchises. He brings them titles. I can't. I cannot fall. I cannot. Uh, I cannot. If he plays twenty years, I can't go with uh, Michael. But look, for, I don't even think it's worth you know comparing them. Is you know, like you know, like John Thompson always says, it does a disservice to the greatness of one. And Michael Jordan was the greatest I ever covered to this point. He really was. Mike, let me let me ask you this because there's there's a lot of talk and speculation. The reason that Michael Jordan agreed to do this documentary was because he felt that there was too much talk about uh, LeBron being the greatest of all time or surpassing him as 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 that. Do you feel that 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 is a realistic motivational uh, point uh, for, for him to with Michael Jordan? Yeah, I mean, 
I don't want to accuse him, but like, yeah, that's that. Michael Jordan is about being the best at whatever he, whatever he is. Basketball supremacy to him is like, if you and I wanted to, you know, uh, basically uh, make the coronavirus vaccine tomorrow and get credit for that. And that would be our legacy in life. Michael Jordan would say, that's number two. Number one is I want to be the best freaking basketball player on the earth. And people need to remember that. And so what I'm getting at is, yeah, I could see that. I mean, this think about it, Anita. This documentary was supposed to run during the NBA Finals. That was when it was planned. So every day that there wasn't a game in the NBA Finals, there was Michael Jordan on the screen. Michael Jordan would have been going head-to-head with LeBron if they went to uh, the Finals. And there would, have been an, there would have been an argument every night like, oh, man, look at this. Uh, oh, LeBron was nice. But, I mean, that's that was the whole motivation. Now, because of the coronavirus and the finals and they're not going to have a season, I bet, this year, you know, it, it, all of a sudden they move it up and it's box o, boffo box office because it's the only thing on television. But, yeah, that's definitely Michael Jordan. I'll, I'll give you a personal anecdote. I'm in, Fre- I'm in Fresno State in California in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of, you know, Farmersville, and um, 1987, Clovis West High School, little tiny high school. Rod Higgins, former Fresno State All-American and all that stuff, was Michael Jordan's teammate the first couple years on the Bulls, became his best friend at some point for a long time. Rod Higgins ended up as an executive with him in Charlotte. But, hey, Rod Higgins has his basketball camp every year in Fresno. Michael Jordan shows up the first few years of his career. must have been like – 84, 85 through 89 or so. He came in the first five years. He shows up one summer. I'm going to college. It must have been my senior year. I walk into this gym in Fresno, Clovis West High School, and it's the last day of the camp, and it's the charity game. Everybody shows up, pays the money. It's the it's Rod Higgins charity game. There's this player. If you said this name around Fresno, California, that area, or even New Mexico, they would say, oh, my God, Kenny Travis. He went played at New Mexico State, averaged like 20 points a year. He used to kill Fresno State because they never recruited him, and they should have. He was from Fresno. He is busting Michael's ass in a game, in a charity game, and he's like doing the whole raise the roof or whatever that was in vogue then, and the crowds love it, and they're going, oh, no, 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 no. He's and Jordan realizes the crowd's getting into it, and I'm watching, I'm like going, I think Jordan's getting mad. I think like it was like Rocky in the in the uh, in, in, against Clubber Lang. Like, no, no, he's not hurt. He's getting mad. He's getting mad. Sonny <laughs> Jordan. I swear to God, then lean in dunks in, uh, in in Kenny Travis's face. Step back jumpers where he just backpedaled the whole way with his arm, you know, raised up like he's still doing a follow through, looking at him. And I mean, oh my God, he once swatted his shot. I swear to God, it landed in the concession stand. It was like. He just annihilated this guy in a charity game. And he was – this was before all the titles, before all the MVPs, before anything. Michael Jordan was not going to be the second-best basketball player in a charity game in freaking Fresno, California in 1987. And everybody – and the great thing about that is I told that story, and I said, no one's going to believe this. And the and the coach of Clovis West, who's now coaches at BYU, his name was Steve Cleveland, he tweets me and he goes, oh, my God. I thought nobody else remembered that night. I was there. And, you know, it was like, this is who Jordan was. This is who he is. He want basketball supremacy is everything to him. It doesn't matter if it's freaking Space Jam or the NBA Finals or a gym in Cleveland. That's why Jerry Bembry, my former colleague, the undefeated, has a great story today. It's about some guy that played at Princeton, backup point guard, beat Jordan one-on-one at his fantasy camp like a year after the Wizards. And it's so good. Like, he's got footage of it, and Jordan has to hug the guy at the end, and, you know, it's killing him. And I'm thinking, that guy is probably the only guy to ever beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. Like, he only went to three, but it was great. The whole thing was great. Yeah, I mean, listen, that's one thing that we're we're really seeing and witnessing and understanding in this documentary is that if you ever crossed him, whether whether it was on the court or off, be careful, like – Dangerous, dangerous. Like, oh, no, like, like right. his, his, mo- his motivational, what motivated him was, it's just, it's, it's really, it, it's unbelievable. And it, it's, it's, it's fun to, it's entertaining to watch what motivated him to, to, to the take his game to another level. Yeah. And all those guys, like, I almost feel like, you know, the, 
this is not the best analogy, but you know, on Netflix, I'll have a thing like inside the mind of the serial killer. Like I want to see inside the mind of this psycho competitive athlete, Tom Brady, Michael Jordan. We ask them why they're so psycho, you know, and I, they really have this gene that somewhere they were born in them that it's all about when it doesn't matter if it's, you know, it, it's playing in, uh, you know, cards or where, you know, it's playing, it's playing go fish with your kids. You got to win. And so I guess, uh, yeah. Oh, by the way, I'll give myself a little pump here. I do a podcast too. I forgot to tell you. It's um, the Mike Wise show on pure hoops media. I was, I was fortunate enough. And in hindsight, very sad. Um, I had the last interview with David Stern. He gave me an hour at his office and I asked him about the gambling and I asked him about, you know, I go, look, like you suspended Michael Jordan because of gambling, didn't you? You know, and I'm like, at that point, David Stern and I have a pretty good relationship. He goes, yeah. And he goes, he was in my living room. He goes, actually, he goes, no, somebody reported that. And I go, the Jordan was in your living room? Yeah. And they said, I suspended him for gambling. And that was it. And he's like, going, it's complete bullshit, complete BS. And and the whole thing is just, it's not, um, it's not true. Because Michael Jordan walked away on his own volition and all this stuff. And I, you know, and I, and I know part of the documentary, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of knocking the media for even suggesting that his gambling might have led to partly led to his father's murder. Somehow, there was there was nothing there, and I think anybody that um, surmised that on their own, I think it was perfectly understandable. Michael Jordan owed a lot of uh, owed some people money. And just because he made a lot of money, that doesn't mean people can't get in deeper than they realize. Everybody's seen it, no matter how much you have. Um, but but I don't think – you shouldn't write that story as anything other than hearsay. And, and you know, and it, and it is disrespectful. But I also don't – Michael Jordan put himself in some bad situations for people to think those things. You know, and so that's the bottom line. I still think – I don't think the NBA suspended him for gambling. I do think at some point there was pressure applied. This is this is me, and I. David Stern will never admit it. Nobody else. I think some pressure was applied, and Michael Jordan probably got sick of it and just said, "You know what? I'm your meal ticket. You're going to screw with me. I'm going. I'm out for a while." That's what I really think happened. But Mike, um, but I'll never be able to prove that. Mike, before before we go, you, you've mentioned you've brought up Tom Brady twice in this podcast, um, and, and comparing him and and his 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 competitive nature to uh to Jordan. And of course as we know, he's no longer in New England, he's now in Tampa. Um my expectations are a lot less than other people's. Uh, a lot of it has to do with COVID-19, the preparation, um the obstacles that I think are, that are going to be presented for a number of these teams. Mm-hmm. Um new new system, new teammates. I'm I think it's going to take a year until we really see the Tampa Bay Bucks and Tom Brady dominate um, that division. I, but I'm I'm curious. Do you what are your what are your expectations for Tom Brady and the Bucks this year? I mean, you're a football person more than I am, and you're and you know the insides and outs of the NFL more than I ever have. Even though I've written about it a lot, especially in Washington, but. Um, I mean, I, I hate to say it. I, Tom Brady is, as long as he's got something left, he's not going to. I, I look at it like Joe Montana leaving San Francisco. Joe Montana never wanted to leave San Francisco. Tom, uh, Steve Young made it impossible. He had to go, and it was at the end of his deal, and they had to choose. And so they choose the younger guy. And it was a smart choice in hindsight. But if you remember – Remember Joe Montana in Kansas City those two I years? I do. I went. I actually went to a Dolphin game. Oh, I actually, Montana had like four or five comebacks, and he and he. I think he took him to the AFC title game before he got knocked out, and that was pretty much the end of his career. But Montana was money, and I'm not saying that Tom Brady is going to be that player, but I wouldn't be surprised if, it, just in the way that Jordan willed his teammates to another level. Tom Brady finds a way to get something out of nothing, squeezes lemons and makes lemonade more uh, quicker than anybody. Do I think they're getting to the Super Bowl next year? No. I could see them winning 10 games. 
you know, and I could see them, I could see them going, you know, losing in the first round of the playoffs. Well, the over, the over under out of Vegas is nine, just FYI. Oh, it uh, is. Okay. Yeah. Last, last but not least. That's right. You're, you're, you're the betting, you're, you're the betting savant too. I'm the, I'm the degenerate gambler who works yeah. for ESPN. So, um, do you really bet on your own or do you just make lines? Do you, do, do you like, do you sports bet on your own or is that unethical? Oh no, I bet on every, I bet on everything. How do you, bet- afford, how do you afford our apartment anymore? Like, <laughs> Cause I win. Are you, are you that good? <laughs> Cause I win. Uh, you're on a gambling I, show. I win silly man. Um, before I let you go again, I, as I mentioned, we're unfortunately in, in a pandemic, um, and yeah. the NBA, all, all the leagues, NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball, mm-hmm. we just heard today from Major League Baseball what their game plan is to try to get back onto the diamond soon. Um, Silver had a one-hour conference call last week uh, talking about their, uh, their brainstorming and, and, and what they could mm-hmm. do to potentially get back um, and finish out the season. I find it interesting the concept and the notion to create these bubble cities, whether it's in Orlando during or in, at the Disney Sports Complex mm-hmm. or in Las Vegas, which MGM has offered up their entire city block. So I'm just okay, curious. That's, to a, that's a disaster, by the way. <laughs> uh, Can you imagine NBA players going through casinos with COVID nineteen. Uh, with with COVID nineteen infected people. Well, they wouldn't. They would be quarantined, Mike. Oh, sure they would. Oh, yeah. You, an NBA player is going to be quarantined and will not go into a casino. Stop. All right. So, so all right. So again, so I just teed you up. You're like you're you're like a. Let me ask you this: Do you think do you think we will see the remainder of the NBA season be played out this year? No, and I don't. I don't have any inside information. I just know this. As much as the owners want to recoup money, as much as the players want to start getting paid again, and and um, and you know most of them have guaranteed contracts anyway, even though they've been asked to take pay cut. Um, as much as everybody in the world would like sports to continue and open up, just like the rest of society, you know, if Adam Silver is anything, he's ahead of the curve on. Uh, not being tone deaf like a lot of sports owners and sports commissioners are like for, you know, for instance, you're our very own Roger Goodell. You know, he just would not, I'm telling you right now, Adam Silver is not going to open the NBA for business. If people are still dying 3000 by the week of this virus, it would, and he, and he wouldn't do it because he, uh, he one, he worry about the safety of his own players and fans, but two, he just know it would be tone deaf. It would be look like, well, we really have to make business go on, even though these people are still dying, and, and you know, and, and we got people in the hallways without ventilators. Um, you know, if there becomes a second wave of this, um, like everybody keeps saying, and especially if I mean, to me, I'm not a public health official, but the public health official says the reason why we're starting to flatten the curve is because people are staying home. Once we go out again, it changes. Um, so I just think that. Unless there's a real drop-off in the infections, unless there's a real drop-off in the deaths, I don't see the NBA starting until the first of the year. I don't even see them getting a training camp going, to be honest with you. Um, And maybe they're at the point where – I could be completely wrong. Maybe they're at the point where a lot of people are, is we're going to have to sacrifice some people. Our players are healthy. Maybe we'll just do it minus some fans and we'll we'll get in on the gambling rush because we've got to get some revenue stream here. But I just don't see Adam Silver doing anything prematurely. I would, I would expect every league to start up before the NBA um, if, if, if we're still in a pretty dire situation with people dying left and right. Well, I know one thing that he did say that, that I thought was, was very good was uh, he said, I, I, I don't want to start – I won't start the NBA unless – the testing um, increases where everybody in the country who needs a test can get a test, can get a test. He says, because we're going to need at least 15,000 in order for us to to pull off the remainder in order for the NBA to pull off the remainder of the season, they're going to need a minimum of 15,000 tests. And he doesn't want to take one test away from a human being who absolutely needs it. Yeah, Who needs life or death. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about, we're, we're talking about, People who've 
some of the uh, problem in my estimation, the greatest athletes in the world and, and, and that some of which might real have problems with this, but most of which like Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell, others will recover. So I, yeah, I, I like that. And I, I hope that's, you know, I hope that's how it goes down. Um, I just think that I don't want to see a season. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hoop junkie, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get in shape now so I can have a pickup game and get destroyed by people. <laughs> so, uh, so I just, I, yeah, I hope it happens. I just don't see it. I just don't see a season happening this year. And the earliest I think that they're going to get back to normal is going to be the first of the year. I hope I'm wrong, but it, that's just my gut, and that's how it goes. And also, you know, what was the UFC? This was this weekend, right? I mean, didn't one guy test positive for COVID nineteen? Yeah, one guy tested positive. Yeah. I want to say twenty four hours before the the, uh, I mean, the card started. That's going to be that's going to be every sporting event in our lifetime in the next two to three years, in my gut estimation. That this thing is going to have such a carryover that there will be some guy testing positive in two years that we had no idea, and he was never exposed to the virus, and you know, and everything will be shut down for a couple of days, and everybody will be quarantined. And then we'll get back to business as usual. That's going to be our reality, I think, for every sport in every way, and certainly ones with, you know, a four hundred plus player workforce. Um, and so, I, you know, that's you know, our world's changed. I mean, shoot, look at—I was going to come up there and do this podcast at your place, and I appreciate you inviting me. I couldn't do it. I did not want to get infected. So, so, so yesterday I went to Walmart. You're so cute. Um, yesterday I went to Walmart. And wherever, whenever I'm in Walmart or Target or, you know, I'm always looking for like the Clorox wipes. Yeah. Right. Those are like, oh, Clorox. Oh, those are, yeah. I mean, they're like, they're few and far between, right? Like, so anyway, so I, so I go to Walmart and, they, and I, I could not find them anywhere. So I was a little disappointed. I'm checking out and I see, I see a, a, a Clorox, like a container of Clorox wipes in somebody else's bag. And I... I like ran over to them with my mask. You know what I mean? Like I totally invaded the six foot thing. <laughs> and I said, where'd you get those wipes? And the guy pointed over. So, you know, when you walk into Walmart and they have like the little hot dog area yeah. where like you could buy a hot dog. And oh, totally. Yeah. Like, yeah. I love that place. They, they got some of the best food out. Well, it's, it's, it, it, so it had, it's, it's no longer, you can no longer get food there. Yeah. It's, it's a Clorox wipe. Like, um, I, warehouse. Yeah, I mean, so they, so, so Walmart now employs one person to man an area with a bunch of Clorox containers, Clorox oh, God, containers under lock and key, and you could only sell one to each customer per day. Oh, that's good. God bless them. That's like, uh, that's like right and, now those Clor- those Clorox wipes are like, you know, uh, they're like, they're like precious, they're em- I know. like precious but, emeralds in the diamond district in Manhattan. And I just sat there and I just said, God, this is our life, Mike. Uh, like, oh no. This is our, like, like this is our reality. You this got a Harris Teeter real quick before I know you got to go. Harris Teeter, Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, I go and um, I go and show up. Toilet paper is scarce. Why toilet paper is scarce? I don't know. But anyway, there's there's no toilet paper on the shelves in this Harris Teeter. I'm walking out of the store after I purchase everything, and I realize at the top of the escalator there's a big box and it's ripped open and it says Northern uh, whatever it is Northern uh, tissue or whatever it is, and 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 I look at it and all of a sudden this woman comes up the escalator just starts shopping. And it just starts walking really fast. And I'm like, oh, oh, no, no, no. I, and I start walking really fast. And we're getting there about the same time. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to be that jerk that we could just split. There's a bunch of rolls in here. And she, and she gets there. She picks up the whole thing. She picks up, I'm talking 12, 18 rolls. No. 12, 18 rolls. Like not just 12, 18 rolls, but like 12, 18 packages of 18 rolls. And then just like, just, I mean, just takes it. I mean, she's. She's just like just like a linebacker corralling a running back, and I'm like going, I can't do this. And so finally, I felt bad, but I just go, um, that's not going to work. He goes, what do you what do you mean that's not going to work? And I go, I, I I need some of the toilet paper. And she goes, I got here first. I got here first, and she started getting nasty. And I go, look, lady, 
I, I don't know who you are. I'm sure you're nice. I'm great. My wife sent me to get to, I've been to five freaking stores. I need some toilet paper. I need you to split this box with me. I don't know how you're going to do it. I need you to split this box with me. <laughs> I got three kids at home. They need toilet paper. And she just looks at me and she goes, okay. And she walks away with half the row. Half the <laughs> and I just felt so guilty. But I was like, I was ready. I, well, I wasn't ready to you, throw clothes. Ready? But I, I was ready to get arrested for toilet paper. It's, um, it's really, it's, it's what we value in life these days is, mm-hmm. is remarkable. But my friend, I value you and I value your time. Thanks. And I and I thank you and I thank you for spending an hour with me today uh talking all about this phenomenal documentary that we're all witnessing. Yeah. Um great stuff. Amongst well, other things. My, by the way, I go to lunch with SD Portnoy. Do you know who that is? Mm. Michael Jordan's main PR person for the last okay. 30 years. She worked for David Fox. Now her and Cordis Polk are basically running the show. Uh Esty Portnoy and I, because Michael Jordan did a story with the undefeated where he gave money to law enforcement and Black Lives Matter, you know, the, the whole like both sides of the friction. And he, it was like Michael Jordan showing this social conscience. Everyone. So we do this story. I go to lunch with her after the fact. She said she talks about this documentary. I'm giving you some good stuff here. She says this thing's this is like 2017. And I go, you guys going to do this? That sounds great. And, and, and I go, well, um. Well, who, who are you going to do it with? Netflix? I said, Netflix? Why don't ESPN? I'm more the ESPN. Like, oh, we're talking to them, but they just, they're, uh, they're, they're, uh, they don't know what they're doing right now. And I don't know. And I go, wait, you're going to make a deal with Netflix before you talk to them? At least. So I sent Connor Shell. You know who that is, right? Of course. Connor Shell, head of ESPN, whatever, TV. Like, he's a big shot. I sent him an email. I said, hey. You need to talk to Esty Portnoy. They're talking to Netflix. Now, why don't you at least talk to him beforehand? And like, I, and he says, hey, you, when did you talk to her? Yeah. All right, all right. Boom. Next thing I know, she makes a deal with the ESPN. Do I get a finder's fee? No, I don't care. I don't, I'm not, I'm not into it. It's not about me, Anita. I'm just glad that the documentary got made, darn it. And chances are probably would not have gotten made with ESPN. And we would not be sitting here having this podcast if it wasn't for you. So <laughs> congratulations, my friend. Thanks. It got me nothing, but that, that doesn't matter. It's, you know what? It's, it's, it's the thought that counts. Um, and anyway, thank you. It was good. I know we met it up under like business circumstances, but it, uh, let's catch up sometime over food when this all dies down. I would love that. I miss you. Miss you too. Good all to right. hear you. Enjoy, enjoy the last two episodes. I will. You too. Okay. Bye. All right. Again, Anita Marks with you, 98.7 ESPN. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. Um, I am filling in for Larry Hardesty on Thursday night from 10 to midnight. And then, of course, you can hear my show every Saturday afternoon from noon to three, again, right here on 98.7 ESPN.